0: Welcome to podcast Number Eight, podcast Podcast Number Eight. Uh, this is Douglas Wilson. Thank you for joining me, and I, I appreciate you listening very much. I wanted to begin this uh, episode by talking a little bit about just war theory, and I want to uh, outline, I want to sketch or outline what just war theory claims, or or uh, what the basic breakdown in just war theory is, and then I want to spend a few minutes talking about a way or a place in which many Christians attempting to apply just war theory uh, trip up so just war theory is div- you can divide it into two categories there's use ad bellum use ad bellum and then there's use uh, i-u-s or j-u-s depending I-U-S, uh, jus, use ad bellum and use in bello. Justice when it comes to the question of going to war and justice when it comes to the question of conduct within a war. So the odd uh, bellum concerns would be something like this. Is it righteous, is it just for us to declare war on Canada because we wanted some more pine trees? Let's say someone got cast a covetous eye over on their great pine forests, and we said we want some of that. And so we trumped up some charge and declared war on Canada. That, that would be uh, a violation of use ad bellum. Uh, that's not a good and godly basis for deciding to go to war. That's not a good occasion of war. For another example, let's say another country invades you uh, you know their their amphibious forces land on both coasts, and they're marching on Kansas, uh, so they're trying to meet in the middle. That that and and we are fighting defensively. That kind of defensive war would be justified. You and you've decided basically the decision whether or not to go to war was not made by you. It was made by somebody else. So if you are looking to go to war with another country. And you're trying to cook up some pretext that pretext if, if, if it is in fact a pretext is a violation of the use ad bellum principle if you are fighting a, a righteous war for a righteous cause you're fighting within uh proportionate limits you're not you know all of that and you're fighting defensively you're simply defending yourself then that war would be defensible according to just war theory use In bellow is a separate question. Use in bellow has to do with your conduct within a war. So the the weapons you use, for example, or the tactics you use. So a use in bellow question would be something like, do we kill all the villagers here to keep word of our troop movements from getting out? Or do we drop a big daisy cutter bomb on this military compound knowing that it will wipe out two neighboring villages you know that that has a question that that's a question of just or righteous conduct within the course of a war so let's say um, someone brings a prisoner a a prisoner of war back to the camp and his commanding officer tells him to take him outside the camp and shoot him um, because he doesn't want to be bothered with a prisoner right now well that would be To obey that order would be to sin and to sin grievously, and it would be a violation of use in bellow. You'd be doing something unrighteous in the course of your fighting. Now, a moment's reflection should show or tell you or reveal that questions about righteous conduct within a campaign or within a battle are decisions that can be made, by individual soldiers or sailors. In other words, the man who was told to shoot the prisoner or the man who was told to drop the bomb on the village, knowing it to be a village, you know, knowing that there were no combatants there. The person who is commanded to execute that order, let's suppose that that person is a Christian, has an immediate conflict set up. He's been commanded to do something which just war theory pro- prohibits, and which he knows to be unlawful so uh the man who is who who is murdering a prisoner knows that he's murdering him Uh, the man who is um blowing apart a village knows that that's what he's doing one of the one of the things um that the american military uh does at least it did it did it well when i was in the navy is that it reminded you constantly of what limits to the authority of your superiors existed uh, what what those limits were so uh, on our submarine for example there was a poster uh, a poster of extracts from the universal code of military justice the ucm the ucmj and this big poster from the ucmj was on the inside door of the stall in each of the heads so you couldn't go to the you couldn't go to the bathroom without sitting there and studying the universal code of military justice. And part of, part of what was on there, and I remember it was on the lower left-hand side, actually, um, part of what was on there was the stipulations or the requirements under which you were required to, diso- to disobey an unlawful order. Uh, So the order comes to you. It's unlawful for you to execute. It's unlawful for you to obey. You must not obey an unlawful order. Now that concerns use in bellow. That's, you may not do an an iniquitous thing. You may not do an ungodly thing and you can't justify it because, hey, this is a war and wars aren't a picnic. Just Just war theory requires every combatant who names the name of Christ? Every combatant who wants to conduct himself as a conscientious Christian in the course of a war, he must know where his lines are. He must know, he must have all the tripwires in place. And he must be prepared on any given day to ruin his career, uh, to, to ruin his life, perhaps, get, get himself thrown in the slammer for refusing to obey an ungodly order. So what's the confusion that I mentioned earlier? Well, the fact that everybody has an individual duty when it comes to use in bellow concerns, it does not follow from that, that everybody has an individual uh, responsibility in use ad bellum concerns. So I can know if I'm being commanded to do an ungodly thing. I cannot really know whether the intelligence that caused the president to ask Congress for a declaration of war was good, sound, or reliable intelligence. I don't know that. So can, can I, and here's the mistake people make, they oftentimes say because every individual must choose on use in bellow concerns, then every individual must choose when it comes to deciding whether or not to go to war. Now, of course, if we to to return to my earlier absurd example of um, hey those Canadian pine trees look really uh, valuable let's take them you know there there are some uh, occasions of war where the the land grab or the money grab the money grab or the territory grab or the the sin is just right out there in the open so that a conscientious Christian looking at it can Tell the difference between right and wrong, righteousness and unrighteousness, at a geopolitical level. That sometimes that sometimes happens, but often, frequently, kings and parliaments and congresses and presidents keep their cards close to their chest. We don't know. We don't have anywhere close to a good grasp of how much information or intelligence or um, uh, data they have in making the decision. And it's quite possible that th- they declared war unjustly. So it's possible for a, a, a Christian soldier, for example, could not carry out a campaign of mass execution of civilians innocently, but he could fight on the side of uh, the, he, a Christian could fight on an unjust side in a war Innocently, so every Christian is responsible for his in-bellow contact. Every Christian is not responsible necessarily for uh, whether or not the the occasion for war is righteous or unrighteous. That's not our department. There are there are many times when we should simply obey or you know respect our superiors and do as we're told. We don't do as we're told when we know that they're commanding us to do something ungodly. But if we don't know, we don't have to go get three graduate degrees in uh, foreign policy before we can decide at the age of 18 whether it's lawful to join the Marines. You don't know enough about that. So basically, if you find yourself surrounded by iniquity, where it's manifest, you know, war crimes in every direction, um, ungodliness in every direction the, the troops are not paying respect to the word of god at all well yeah christians should kick at that level when you know you you're responsible for what you know but and this is important you're not responsible for what you don't know and a god to me he's God So we come now to our book review section in Podcast episode number eight. So we come to this book review section and when you consider it, why not? Why shouldn't we come to that? The book today is Economics in One Lesson. Economics in One Lesson by Hazlitt. This really is a book that a lot more people need to read and internalize. And it's it's just a wonderful treatment of basic economic realities. And it shows how, how frequently... Th- A a one basic fallacy, which he calls the broken window uh, fallacy, how often that fallacy runs through all kinds of economic uh, decisions that our congressmen are arguing for, that people are demanding, and so on. So what is that one lesson? Let's say you have to distinguish when you're talking about an economic, the economic impact of something, you have to Take everything into account. And when you're taking everything into account, you have to take into account the things seen and the things unseen. So uh, why why the broken window fallacy? So, so, so suppose that someone throws a brick through a window of a downtown shop. They throw a brick through the window. And so that shop owner has to call the glazier, has to call the the guy who sells windows, the guy who repairs broken windows, he has to call him up and have that window replaced. Now, when he calls, that, when he calls the glazier up, uh, the, the man with the broken window is having a bad day. The guy who replaces the window, who, the guy who gets the business, is having a good day. Now, let's say this uh, vandal who walked down the main street in the middle of the night uh, was really industrious. And he threw a brick through every window. So he walked up and down the street throwing a brick through every window, and he was apprehended on the 50th window. Okay, And he's arrested. He's, he's safely in the county jail. Each one of those shop owners is having a mildly bad day. The guy who replaces the window, the glazier, he's having the best day ever. Okay, He's having the best day ever what happened to him is that this vandal stimulated the economy so and and you can go to and now this is the this is the tricky part in the week following when this guy is replacing all the windows he has to hire a couple of extra guys it's a humming hive of activity it's very exciting to watch watch him work watch him go look at him go now when you're watching him work this is the this is the key it's possible to watch him work it's not only is it possible to watch him it's possible to take cameras down there and and videotape him while he's working and you can and and someone could write a story about how industry was really promoted in your town XYZ because look at all the work that's going on at this glass, uh, at this glass shop. Well, what you have there is the, a photographable economic impact of a positive nature. And then you have a non-photographable impact, economic impact of everything that happened to all those retail shop owners up and down the street. In other words, let's say, let's say just for grins that the shop owner who's replacing all the windows has you know does ten thousand dollars worth of business in this very busy week well you can photograph him you can videotape him making making that ten thousand dollars you can see that you can see it happening you can see the economic impact and let's say that each of the shop owners is out seven hundred dollars it's a you know big plate glass window in the front of their shop each one of the shop owners is out seven hundred dollars you can photograph the broken window, but you can't photograph the economic impact of that missing seven hundred dollars. Um, oh, one of them says, "Oh, we were thinking about uh, taking a vacation. We might we might postpone it a month." Or someone else says, "Well, I was thinking of um, of buying a new coffee machine for the, for behind the bar, um, but I think I'll." I'll I won't upgrade just yet. So you have a host of economic decisions that are being made by the shop owners, and you can't photograph any of them. So it's vis- a visible impact that you can see and an invisible impact that you can't see. Well, it evens out. All the money that the glass uh, glass repairman, window repairman, all the money he's making is money that the people who bought their replacement windows from him, no longer have. The money he has is money that they don't have. And because they don't have it, they're not going to spend it wherever it was they were going to spend it. And there's no conceivable way for you to trace where they were going to spend it, track that down, and photograph it. And and someone following this might say, well, okay, this makes sense. But are people really so foolish as to say, well, let's Let's have an economic stimulus program where we bust out. We have a government agent walk up and down the street, busting out all the windows. That sounds like a grand idea, and people are going to say, "Are really are people really that dumb? Are people really that foolish?" Well, yeah. Just just a few years ago, what was the cash for clunkers program? The cash for clunkers was exhibiting this particular fallacy. Let's destroy running automobiles so that those who are manufacturing new automobiles um, can't get to manufacture more of them. So we'll take these old cars out, uh, take them out of commission and and bring new cars into the system and, and voila, we have uh, economic stimulus. Well, come on, you know, come on. Are you really honestly serious? Here, let me give you one other example, but flip it around. I gave you the example of a photographable, a photographable good day at the glass shop. How about this? Suppose a company decides to close a factory. Uh, let's say a, a factory in a small town is no longer profitable and the company, in order to uh, mind the bottom line, decides to close the factory and it's, uh, the factory is located in one place, it's got a fence, it's got a gate, And CBS and ABC and NBC and all those guys can show up at the factory gate and they can do interviews with people telling them that it's going to be a crummy Christmas this year because after 20 years working at the plant, they closed the thing down and look what they did to me. You can interview that guy. You can photograph him So because you have all the economic impact this time of a negative nature in one place. In the previous example, all the positive stimulus was in one place. All the negativity was spread out over all the retail shop owners. In this case, all the negative impact is in one factory and the laid off workers. And the money that the company saved that they would use to hire workers elsewhere or build another plant in another part of the country, uh, all, the, uh, all that that that's not traceable. You can't interview those people. You can't see that you can't trace it out. But of course, the whole thing evens out. Now this broken window fallacy is the thing what Hazlitt does is he takes you walks you through economic issue after economic issue and shows you how fallacious reasoning lies at the root of some of our most popular political programs. And we just need to learn how to think shrewdly we just need to learn how to think clearly and in a straight line about these things and until we do we're going to continue to waste a lot of wealth so now podcast episode eight hamartiology we continue our study of sin Peter tells Christian servants to work for their masters, and he tells them to do it with a clean conscience. That's in 1 Peter 2.19. He knows that the sinfulness of the human heart meant that a certain amount of mistreatment was inevitable. He calls it suffering wrongfully, adikos. So when you suffer wrongly, when you suffer unjustly, um, that's a shame. But he also knows that this same human heart was found in the servants as well, and and he says, Peter goes on to add, that it's no glory if a servant is chastised for his faults and he takes it patiently. So if a servant is lazy and doesn't get the job done and he's chastised for that and he takes it patiently, there's no credit in taking it patiently. Um, you know, you deserve the rebuke. you you deserve the, uh, uh, you deserve the tongue lashing. But if a person under authority is wronged, which is not hard to imagine, Peter says that such patience is acceptable to God. So when you suffer wrong, adikos, uh, when you suffer wrong, adikos, patiently, that's acceptable to God. The caution from this text ought to be directed uh, to everyone who is in a position of authority. Uh, Parents, employers, board members, branch managers, and lieutenants we want to be very careful that we never abuse our authority. Do not treat those under your authority in such a way that they must apply what Peter teaches here. Uh, they don't, don't treat your underlings, don't treat your employees, don't treat your children, don't treat the people, your students, don't treat the people who are under your authority wrongfully. Now, if you do, then Peter's instruction applies to them because the person over them, Uh, treated them wrongfully, and they are to suffer it patiently. They're not to complain. They're not to whine. But those who are in authority need to take care that they don't abuse that position. You've spent a pleasant half hour with podcast proprietor Douglas Wilson. This podcast is produced by Canon Press. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite listening platform. To hear more from Doug, please visit canonpress.com.